Welcome to season two of Across the Ages. I took a little break because I had grown-up stuff to do, things like buying a house, and also the sun's been out, so I wanted to spend my weekends frolicking outside in meadows and woodlands and stuff. Welcome back, it's bloody wonderful to have you here. The world's oldest depiction of a weapon is in the form of a cave painting that is at least 44,000 years old from Indonesia. The painting depicts a couple of pigs, four small-bodied relatives of the water buffalo, along with eight humanoid figures. Some of the humans are holding long spindly objects pointing towards the unfortunate animals that archaeologists think could well be spears. Today we're going to be talking about weapons, so you better have eyes in the back of your head for this episode because it's going to get sharp. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. The spear is one of the oldest known tools in history. It even predates Homo sapiens as archaeologists have found stone tips of spears from South Africa that are 500,000 years old. That's half a million years ago before humans even evolved. The oldest Homo sapiens specimen is 315,000 years old, which was found in Morocco in 2017. About half a million years ago, the first evidence for clothing appears, so I reckon they were holding animal skin catwalks while using their spears as pimp sticks. So if it wasn't the sapiens, what Homo was it? Bear with on this. It was Homo heidelbergesis, heidelbergesis, which was the common ancestor of both us and Neanderthal. Eventually, primitive man creates the atlatl, or spear thrower, which made the spear the MVP. That's most valuable player in the weapon game. It was faster, more accurate and more powerful than ever before. So what did this spear thrower look like? It was a stick carved out of wood or bone. I had to watch a video to understand what this looked like because the description I was reading really didn't do it for me. So I watched a National Geographic video called Live Free or Die DIY and now I get it. The atlatl was about the length of the forearm and was essentially used to increase the power of your throw, just like those ball throwers that dog owners use. The non-business end of the spear was sat in a little notch at one one end of the atlatl and you held the other end which sometimes had two little finger holes and then it was thrown. So before atlatls it'd be like oh hey here's a spear and after it'd be like wang here's a spear bitch because you'd have to yell louder at the prey or indeed human as they'd be further away wouldn't they? earliest evidence of the boomerang in Australia is 20,000 years ago in the Guion Guion rock art paintings. The boomerang is probably one of the most recognisable symbols of Australia. For Aboriginal people, the boomerang is a symbol of their rich culture and heritage and a tangible link to their long history in Australia. Aboriginal people consider the boomerang to be as old as the continent itself. Australia is absolutely massive. You can fit Europe in it one and a half times. Large. It's no surprise then that there are 250 different Aboriginal language groups across the landmass, which means that the style of boomerang really varies depending on which group you look at. There are heavy boomerangs used by inland groups, and light boomerangs thrown by groups living on the coast, with most of them being the non-returning kind. Okay, so what were boomerangs used for? Hunting is the first use, with targets being anything you can knock out, kill and eat, such as kangaroos, birds and even fish. How long do you reckon a boomerang can be thrown by a skilled hunter? I thought about 20 metres maybe. Well, times that by five and you're there. They are also a fighting weapon. I absolutely would not like to be conked on the head with one of these thrown by a strong warrior. 
Aside from throwing boomerangs, they also had boomerangs up to two metres high for hand-to-hand combat. Australia was not the only place in the world where throwing sticks like boomerangs developed. A 23,000-year-old mammoth tusk carved in a shape similar to the boomerang was discovered in Poland in 1986. What? The Maori are the ancient culture of Polynesians which colonised New Zealand around 1000 BCE and were the sole occupants before the Europeans came and ruined everything in the 17th century. The Maori were close contact, hand-to-hand fighters, so their weapon style of choice was the club, and they had quite a few different types and shapes. Clubs are heavy, so the Maori trained their young from an early age to get them strong enough to wield these skull smushers. It wasn't just about the strength either. The kids were taught to look at strategic points on the opponent's body, such as the shoulder and the big toe, enabling them to predict where they would move and strike next. There are patu clubs that kind of look like a thicker and flatter version of a rounder's bat. For the non-British listeners, which for some reason is most of you, think of a cricket bat, but half the length. These could be made of stone or whalebone. There are also the Oaxaca. Oaxaca translates as mouth of the fish. So imagine the patu club, but with a large notch out of the side, like, you know, a fish mouth. This was used for catching an opponent's weapon. With a quick flick of a Maori wrist, you've lost your weapon, mate. Prepare to be dead. The Oaxacas are usually covered with elaborate carvings. My favourite weapon of the lot is the Mir Ponamu. It's the shape of a teardrop with a handle and was used to target the head and ribs. It was typically made of jade and were the most revered of all the weapons and some were even buried along with the owner. Much like Vikings, the greatest honour for a Maori warrior was to die in battle. And dying in your bed like the old woman in the Titanic was only for the weak. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. That's what anyone fighting against Greek fire used to sing, obviously. The Byzantine Empire was living its life between the years 313 and 1453. In its early years, it covered a huge area around the Mediterranean Sea. Then over time, it did shrink until it was conquered by the Ottoman army in 1453. Yes, that's a simple version, but I want to talk about fire. Greek fire was a weapon known as liquid fire or sea fire. It was heated, pressurised and then delivered by a siphon. Its main use? Keeping enemy ships away at sea and setting them on fire, obviously. My first thought when learning about this was that they're in the sea, so why can't they just put the fire out? That's me being a twat, because the concoction was able to burn in water and it's possible that the flames burned even more aggressively upon contact with water. It was the limpet of the weapon world and positively stuck to whatever it touched, whether that was a ship or some poor sod sent off to war. There was some hope to extinguish it though, your anti-seafire shopping list included vinegar, sand and stale urine, which would have smelled delightful. Not something you want to pickle your eggs in, at least. Any Game of Thrones fans will remember the green fire inferno that destroyed the ships at the Battle of Blackwater, and then later Marjorie Tyrell, along with the whole citadel and half the city. Like, boom, bye everyone. Absolute annihilation. <laughs> How old do you reckon gunpowder is? 
Around the 9th century, Chinese alchemists were trying to create elixirs to give everlasting life. But instead, they created gunpowder, which is ironic, considering what gunpowder is used for. It's made by mixing saltpetre with sulphur and charcoal. In a 9th century text, the discovery was described as Smoke and flames result so that, the scientists, hands and faces have been burnt, and even the whole house they were working in burned down. Gunpowder was first used against the Mongols, whose constant invasions into the country pissed off the Chinese like you would not believe. They were the first to be subject to flying fire, an arrow fixed with a tube of gunpowder that ignited upon contact. More gunpowder-based weapons were invented by the Chinese and perfected against the Mongols in the next centuries, including the first cannons and grenades. The Conqueror series of books based on Chinggis Khan describes the Mongols' first experience of gunpowder and it's really immersive. Imagine that you've never heard anything like an explosion and suddenly start to hear bangs going off around you that shake you to your very core. Suddenly, the battlefield was never going to be the same again. Won by firepower, not manpower. I had originally written in my notes to research the medieval English longbow. Ignorance from your girl today because the longbow is way older than that and it is not English. If you're a regular listener, you'll know all about Utzi the Iceman. He's a bloke found in the Utz... Utzal Utztal Alps, called Utzi, who was alive over 5,000 years ago, around 3,300 BCE. You know he holds the record for the oldest known hat and the oldest known pair of shoes. Well, the world's oldest longbow also belonged to your boy. His bow was made from you and was 5 foot 9 long. Another bow made from you has been found within some peat in Somerset, England and has been dated to 2,700 BCE. Forty longbows, which date from the 4th century, have been discovered in a peat bog in Denmark. Another source claims that the Welsh invaded the longbow in the 11th century. The story being that it was first encountered by the English during William the Conqueror's invasion of Wales, and impressed the Normans so much with its effectiveness that they adopted it for themselves. Longbows have been used by the Saxons and Vikings too. I wanted to cover the longbow in the medieval era specifically, as I've watched a few documentaries about medieval archers that I wanted to share. The skeletons of English archers were deformed from years of archery and training started at seven years old. The high poundage of war bows, coupled with years of training in their use from the age of seven, led to skeletons having overdeveloped shoulder and arm bones to compensate for the growth of hench muscles. Skeletons have also been found with the centre of the spine twisted, as well as grooves on the inside of finger bones as a result of repeatedly drawing a long bowstring. Boing! In 1252, a royal edict by King Henry III demanded that able-bodied men between the age of 15 to 60 years old were ordered by law to equip themselves with a bow and arrows. Over 100 years later, in 1363, Edward III passed another archery law, making it obligatory for Englishmen to practice their skills with a longbow every Sunday. This was to ensure that should a war get going, there would be a handy army of longbowmen across England. One of my favourite facts is about English people using the two-finger salute as a way of telling people to fuck off, originating from medieval archers. I had a sudden panic wondering whether it was actually true. No one is 100% sure, but I think we're leaning towards yes. The Battle of Agincourt of 1415 is one of the most famous battles in the Hundred Year War between the French and the English. In short, the Hundred Years' War was over territorial rights and the issue of succession to the French throne. 
I'm already a bit bored by that, so I'll get to Agincourt. Henry V was on the English throne in 1415 and had decided to head over to Normandy with 12,000 men to start a siege of the city of Harfleur, which took six weeks to surrender. His numbers took a big hit after six weeks and the army lost no end of, pe- no end of soldiers to casualties, disease and desertion. I mean, it sounds absolutely shit. The archers got paid six pence a day in the early 15th century, which was about the same as a skilled mason at the time, but twice the amount of an unskilled labourer. I'd rather be chipping away at stone, that's for sure. After winning Harfleur, he headed to Agincourt, taking a detour to avoid the River Somme. The English were weak by this point and had marched for like 200 miles and loads of them were shitting their insides out with dysentery. By the time they got there, modern estimates put the English at 6,000, while the French were sitting at a comfortable 20 to 30,000 men, outnumbering the English 5 to 1. Other estimates say it was only outnumbering them 2 to 1, but what we do know is that the English were at a massive disadvantage. Looks like the shits were going to be the least of their problems. I went into a bit of an Agincourt rabbit hole looking at battle positions. From what I can gather, there was a ploughed field flanked by two woodlands. At the narrow end of the field were the English, spanning the width, with archers under cover of the woodland each side. It was this that enabled them to pick off the first French wave one by one in huge numbers. The longbow can fire an arrow over 250 metres, so you can imagine the devastation this caused on the battlefield. It didn't help the French that the field was basically a muddy quagmire after a week of rain. The second wave of French was so tightly packed that they couldn't use their weapons effectively. The third wave was so busy falling over the corpses of the first and second wave that they couldn't do much either. They joined them soon after. The English losses were about 400 and the French losses stood at around 6,000. Hang on, I started this section talking about slinging two fingers at people. During the Hundred Years' War, the French would cut off the middle fingers off the hands of captured English archers to render them unable to fire their deadly longbows. On the eve of battle, 29-year-old Henry V reminded his longbowmen that if captured, the French would cut their fingers off, and the V had become an established up yours. Though, some argue that it was only attributed to the Battle of Agincourt because it was such a well-known battle. The French won the Hundred Years' War, by the way, so that was all massively worth it. There's a really awesome website called MedievalSoldier.org, which is a database which you can search for specific soldiers to see if any of your ancestors fought. It was created by a team from Henley Business School, and it's just such a fascinating resource. I checked and there's no Sabins, which is sad because I really love me some family history. TLDR is that the longbow is a badass weapon. The trebuchet arrived on the scene in 12th century Asia. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's specifically used during sieges to smash down walls. So we know that you can lob stones at people, but you know where else we can lob into a siege city? Disease! Yes, all you need to do is grab a rotting corpse, wang it right into the heart of the city. The first recorded account of biological warfare took place in the city of Kaffa, which is modern-day Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine absolutely killed it at Eurovision this year. If you hadn't had a chance to look it up, where have you been? I've spoken about the Mongol Empire a few times, and to give you an idea of scale, in the 13th to 14th centuries, they built the second largest empire in the history of the world, coming second only to the British. They ruled over 9.2 million square miles, which is one of the half times the size of Russia. Large. 
Well, in 1343, Yanni Beg, the Mongol leader, wants the city of Kafir to hand over some Christians that had been given protection after killing a Muslim Mongol. Muslims and Christians fight in, who'd have thought it? Kafir manages to repel the Mongol armies, but two years later, the Mongols came back with the Black Death. You know, the plague that killed up to 200 million people across the world in the 14th century? That's the one. The Black Death had been sweeping across Central Asia since 1331 and had caught up with the Mongols laying siege to the city. The Mongols were dropping like flies, but not being wasteful, they whacked the corpses in their catapults and happy birthday guys, here's the plague. Imagine that, you're just minding your own business, out to get some beans or something, and a festering body lands at your feet, exploding on impact, covering you with gross horrible pustules from the plague. Blech. The siege ended in 1347 after negotiations between the Mongols and the city, but by then, the plague had gotten nice and comfortable in Kaffir. Those who were still alive fled Kaffir in ships sailing to Europe, taking the Black Death along with them. Now, this won't have been the only way the Black Death got around because it was already doing a pretty good job, but I'm sure it didn't help. In 2015, the trebuchet was still taking names. At Warwick Castle, in the middle of England, 300 people watched as a reconstructed 22-tonne, 18-metre-high trebuchet launched a fireball, which accidentally smashed into a thatched boathouse, rendering it destroyed. When were tanks invented? According to Google, which is my best friend, it was invented in 1915 by the British. Well, good listeners... Have you heard that Da Vinci of Mona Lisa fame did it first? What do you do when you see a turtle? Probably think it's really cute and majestic, but when Da Vinci looked at one for long enough, he was like, (gasps) a turtle, but make it war. The Da Vinci tank literally looks like a turtle shell without the turtle in it. He wasn't crazy, which comes up to a point at the top, like a little tiki hut. There were four wheels inside the shell, which was made of wood reinforced with metal plates and was designed to be powered by eight men using hand cranks. Da Vinci also toyed with the idea of using horses to drive the machine, but decided there would panic in the enclosed space. Don't think I'd like to be in a tank with a couple of horses. The tank had up to 24 cannons that could fire 360 degrees, like pap, 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 and it also had a lookout at the top. Nothing even similar appears for another 400 years until the First World War. However, Da Vinci's tank had something that the first tanks didn't have, and that is sloping sides. These increase deflection of projectiles as well as add instability. One interesting feature of the tank drawing was that if it was built the exact way that Da Vinci had drew it, then the turtle tank wasn't going anywhere, as the hand cranks were set in opposite directions. It's uncharacteristic of this really clever dude to make such an error, suggesting that he either built this floor into the design to protect it from being stolen, or because he was a pacifist at heart and hated warfare. However, others argue that da Vinci simply loved animals and would have wanted his tank to function, as it would have effectively replaced the use of elephants on the battlefield, which were basically the tanks of the time. I found a website called leonardodavinciesinventions.com, and there's a video on there that is accompanied by a tiny 3D printed model, which I really do want on my desk to play with, but unfortunately, it is no longer for sale. As always, there's no way I could have covered all weapons throughout history. I'd be here all week. I cherry-picked a few weapons that tickled my fancy that are a bit more interesting than sword is pointy and gun goes bang. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it and to get a shout-out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. I've set up a coffee account and have popped the link in the show notes. Each episode takes about 12 hours to create and I do everything myself. 
So if you enjoy Across the Ages, then feel free to support me by buying me a coffee. Five star reviews this week. Here we go. Base Bone by FBO says, A fantastic journey. Big history fan here and love how Natalie analyses topics across time and cultures. Wonderful voice. Well-researched topics and love how she cracks herself up. My wife and I have just had a baby and listened to childbirth across the ages and I'm very glad to be living in the 21st century. Congratulations on your baby. I hope it's going well. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages or you can like my page on Facebook at across the ages pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages.